Amen. Thank you to our worship team. Thank you, Liberty, for leading us in prayer. Isn't it good to have some of our college students back with us leading us in worship this morning? Thank you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Say it with me if you can say it by heart. I'm sure you all can in whatever version is meaningful to you. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, re he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a place, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Such beautiful and comforting words. Arguably the most famous words in all of Scripture, often uttered at funerals because nothing quite like that brings the comfort and the solace and the hope to those who are grieving. Countless songs, sermons, books have been written about these verses, and rightly so because it's packed with so many precious promises. And I'm not going to pretend today that we're going to learn anything new or, or you're going to hear anything that hasn't already been said about Psalms 23. And I'm just going to pause for a second. It's really bassy. I don't know if that we could kind of, if I need to adjust it here, or um, that's a little bit better. Thank you. I don't know if there's anything new that we will be able to say about this famous passage, but I felt like if we're going to do a series in, in Psalms, we've got to have Psalm 23 in there. That's meant so much to so many. And I was drawn in a particular way to that phrase right at the beginning, this declaration that David gives, I shall not want. I was struck by that phrase because, I don't know about you, but I find it hard not to want. A buddy of mine uh, just this past week texted me a picture of his brand new golf clubs. And I have a very good set of golf clubs. They were not cheap. I love them. But if you were to look on my internet browser on my computer, all of the little pictures, you know those little advertisements because they track you, you know, and all of my little pictures would be of golf clubs because that's what I've been looking at for like the past several weeks whenever I have a free moment. Because now that my friend has one, even though I've got a perfectly good set of them, I want new golf clubs. It's hard not to want. I am not the only person, though, in my family that struggles with wanting things. I don't think I have ever seen anybody want something as badly as when my wife, Beamy, has a craving for a particular food. It's like the entire world is on hold until that craving is satisfied. Anybody relate to that? Any spouse like that here? Any, any sibling like that? <laughs> the real challenge is when she's craving something and she has no idea what it is. 
Ever been in that? I'm craving something, and I just have to have it, but I don't know what it is. And it's like this whole investigative, you know, procedure to kind of to satisfy that craving. It is hard not to want. In his book, Traveling Light, maybe you have read it before, Max Lucado says that as human beings, we struggle so much with wanting that it's like we are prisoners to it. I'd like to read an excerpt from his book. He said, the prison of want. You've seen her prisoners. They are in want. They want something. They want something bigger, nicer, faster, thinner. They want. They don't want much, mind you. They just want one thing. One new job, one new car, one new house, one new spouse. They don't want much. They just want one. And when they have one, they will be happy. And they are right. They will be happy when they have one. They will leave the prison. But then it happens. The new car smell passes. The new job gets old. The neighbors buy a larger television set. The new spouse has bad habits. The sizzle fizzles, and before you know it, the ex-con breaks parole and returns to jail. It's hard not to want. Have you ever found yourself in the prison of want? You feel better when you have more, worse when you have less. If you you are if you are if you find joy when when joy is just one delivery away, boy. I still get excited, you know, when I order from Amazon because there is something from a package coming to your door, right? Is your joy just one delivery away, one transaction away, one more thing away? If so, welcome to the prison of want. But you may be thinking, well, Darren, you know, it's not fair to just categorize it in that way. There, there's wants that I have that, that are legitimate, that aren't trivial, that are really important, I just want to be able to pay my bills and and provide for my family. I just want to not be so stressed at work. I want to be treated fairly. I want to not be lonely. I want to be accepted by my friends, my colleagues. I want my health back. Those are all good wants. Nothing wrong with wanting those things. But I think even good wants have the potential to imprison us. Because we can start to think that if it's only when we get those things that then life will be good. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I will have joy. Even with those good wants that aren't bad to have, we can even then get imprisoned by them. But David seems to have found the secret to breaking out of the prison of want and staying there. And it involves a two-step process. Step one, let God be your shepherd. I don't live in want, David says, because the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, the word shepherd, doesn't it just invoke thoughts of tenderness and security and provision? Yet it means nothing if we cannot say the Lord is my shepherd. It's one thing to say the Lord is a shepherd. It's quite another to say the Lord is my shepherd. You know, Martin Luther used to love to say that faith is defined by personal pronouns. Faith is a matter of personal pronouns. My Lord, my God, the Lord is my shepherd. David says. It makes all the difference. 
And this not wanting thing, it's really communicating this idea of just not needing anything, even contentment. Many of your translations might say something along the lines of, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I won't be in need of anything. In fact, some scholars suggest that the original language, the Hebrew there, is written in such a way that verse 1 could be interpreted as, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack him. I shall not be in want of God. Feels like David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd, and that's enough. I trust that that's enough. You know, I am a fairly trusting person. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I'm a little too trusting sometimes because it makes me a little bit gullible. My friends used to love to play practical jokes on me when I was growing up, and I'm happy to say that my family has continued that tradition, often catching me because I'm so trusting, so believing in people. But I am ashamed to admit, family, that I am often in a place where I don't trust the one person I need to trust the most, my maker. Maybe that's why David uses the whole metaphor of a shepherd here, caring for their sheep. Because you remember what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 6? We have all wandered away like sheep. Each of us has gone his own way. We like to go our own way. We like to be self-reliant. And if indeed we are sheep, which is what Jesus also calls us, then we are the last people that need to be wandering away on our own. I mean, have you you spent much time with, with sheep? I know the views are out there greeting. I used to live very close to the views growing up, and I would go to their house and see all their sheep that they would have there. Have you ever spent any time around sheep? They're not the sharpest tool in the shed. Have you ever known a sheep? trainer, a professional sheep trainer? No, there's no such thing because there's no money in it. You, you cannot train sheep. You can't make them do tricks. You can't make them lie down or roll over. Beyond that, they are defenseless. No fangs, no claws. They can't bite you. They're not going to outrun you. Why is it that the ones that most need a shepherd resist him so? Go their own way. Well, if you're like me and you like to go your own way at times, consider for a moment the ways in which David describes God being enough here. I know you know this text well, but let me just remind you of the ways God is enough, and maybe it will help you and I trust that he's enough for us today. He makes me, verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I think maybe first what David is getting at here is that he provides for my needs. The shepherd needs to help his sheep find grass and water for their survival. And remember, this is ancient Palestine. Extremely hot, dry, rocky conditions. Grass and water, hard to find. Kind of reminds me of Southern California. Which also tells me that even when resources are scarce, when conditions aren't ideal, even there... God provides for our needs. But there's more than just providing for the physical needs here in what David says. The shepherd leads them to, we get this image of leading the sheep to a place of satisfaction, peace, and tranquility. Did you know that it is pretty much impossible to make a sheep lie down? I should have asked the views about that, but that's what I've read. It's pretty much impossible to make a sheep lie down 
lie down. Sheep will only lie down when they have had plenty to eat, have quenched their thirst, and are not threatened by wild animals. Furthermore, sheep won't drink water from water that is rough or moving. Often a shepherd will have to dig some kind of dead-end channel or, or construct some kind of nook where the stream is so that the water can be still for the, for the sheep to even want to go try to drink it. So the imagery here is that God is not forcing the sheep down. He is settling them down, doing everything he can, leading them to a place where they are satisfied, when they are at rest, when they are calm. Boy, that verse alone, just verse 2 alone, should be enough for us to trust that God is enough. But there's more. It goes on, he restores my soul, David says. No wonder, David says, there's nothing I'm going to want. I'm not going to be in need of anything because my shepherd has satisfied, has refreshed the deepest part of who I am, where it really counts. But that word restore, it could also be understood as returning, bringing back. And when you combine that with the next phrase, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, we get this beautiful picture of God's grace. Because the implication here is that the sheep have strayed. They have strayed from the path. They are lost. But the shepherd brings them back. And let me just remind you, family, how it is that our shepherd really brings us back. I read to you again from Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What kind of shepherd dies for his sheep? Ours does. And he did it so that you and I could be put back on the right path. And if you think those reasons aren't good enough to trust that God is enough, here's the clincher. Verse 3, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David is trying to just illustrate as best he could in the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, this is the, the worst possible circumstances you can imagine. Even there, God is with us, comforting us, guiding us. And did you notice the word through? I think it's important to notice that word. The dark valley is not a place that the shepherd wants us to take up residence in. It's something we pass through. I once heard a, a preacher say, that God takes our those and turns them into throughs. I love that. There will be dark times we pass through. Even when God is our shepherd, we will be going through those times. But we go through them, and we don't go through them alone. God's rod and staff comfort us along the way, David says. You know the difference between the rod and the staff? The rod was that big stick that the shepherd basically used to pound on the path as they walked to, to keep the snakes away. It's something that I 
think I need to start adopting here in Southern California. The last three hikes we've gone on, we've seen four rattlesnakes. We haven't been on a hike in a while. (laughs) Isn't that a beautiful image? As we're walking through the dark valley, God is there with us, keeping the enemy at bay, off the path. The rod is for the enemy, but the staff, the staff is for the sheep. It's for us. The staff with its you know, stereotypical hook is what the shepherd would use to rescue the sheep when it falls into the pit. And did you know that when a sheep falls and lands upside down, they can't really breathe? So the shepherd has to quickly have something to, to put them right side up again so that they can breathe. David says, this comforts me. And check this out. The root word for comfort in the Hebrew literally means to breathe strongly, to sigh. Which means that when we are going through those dark valleys and and God is with us, he is helping us to, to catch our breath as we go through it. To even have a sigh of relief in those moments. What an image of the peace that passes all understanding, even in the dark valley. Are you starting to see just how much God is enough? That when he's your shepherd, you won't be lacking because you'll have all of him. It reminds me of the song that we sometimes sing, all of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need. All I have in you is more than enough. You know, this week as I've been studying Psalms 23 and trying to practice what I preach, trying to let God be my shepherd, trying to trust that he's enough, I've developed a prayer this week that I've been reciting over and over again. It's been really helpful for me. Maybe it would be helpful for you. It's gone something like this. God, I have had enough of this situation I'm in. Maybe that means there's not enough of you in it. I invite you to be enough for what I've had enough of. Step one in the process of breaking out of the prison of want is letting God be our shepherd, trusting that he is enough. He is enough for all we need. And then we get to the second step. The second step, I think, is this. We choose God as our host. In verse 5, we see a shift in the metaphor. God goes from being a shepherd who provides and protects David to a gracious host who lavishes him in abundance. The maker of the universe is making dinner. He who spread the stars in the sky is is spreading spreading the table. The anointed one is anointing David with oil, and his cup is overflowing. Just image after image of how God is going overboard for his beloved guest. And the crazy thing is, it's in the presence of David's enemy. Another important detail not to overlook. You know, I think sometimes we feel guilty if we're going through those dark moments. But God says that they will happen. If we are faithful to God, we still end up in those moments when he's our shepherd, when he's our host. But what God promises here is that even in the presence of those hostile situations, there's joy, there's abundance, there's goodness. 
And that last verse especially speaks to this concept when David says, Surely your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's my favorite part of the whole psalm. Because that word follow, it really doesn't do justice to, to the biblical language there. It sounds nice. But that verb might be better understood, better translated as running after, putting to flight, pursuing. What David is trying to describe is that God's goodness and mercy will be chasing him all the days of his life. Can't you just see David sitting there, writing those words, praying these words, singing those words, accompanied by his harp? saying something along the lines of, Lord, no matter how fast my enemies pursue me, your goodness pursues me even faster. No matter how relentless my foes may be, your mercy is even more relentless. God's goodness and mercy chases after us. In his book, Life Without Lack, if you've never read it, it's great. Dallas Willard gives a cool illustration of how we let God's goodness and mercy chase after us. He entitles it, Tag, You're It. I want to read you a little bit from it. When you were young, you probably played a game called Tag. This was not my game of choice when I was a very small child. The big kids always made sure the little kids were it. Anybody relate to that when you were younger? Once a smaller child was tagged, just about all hope was lost. The big kids could run so much faster that it felt like the little one would be it forever. I did all I could to avoid being it. A day with Jesus is just the opposite. Jesus is it, and you and I are not. As we all declared at the start of the game, do they still do that today? One, two, three, not it. You can do that with Jesus. It's not up to you, he continues, to make everything happen now. Yoked to Jesus, allow him to carry most of the load as you go throughout your day in his uplifting presence. This is a great relief. As you work better and accomplish good things, your mind will be clearer. Your work, you will be working with strength and peace in your heart. Not so when you are it. When everything depends on you, it can feel like your feet are bolted to the floor Everything becomes a burden. You become irritated, even hopeless and despairing, fretting your day away. So if you find yourself lapsing back into the role of being it, it, simply reach out and say to Jesus, tag, you're it. He's much better at being it than any of us anyway. Those three little words, tag, you're it have been the second prayer I have been saying over and over this week. And I got to tell you, family, as I have simply said those three words to God in prayer throughout this week, I have discovered that God is way better at being it than me. And I have discovered that you can't outrun the goodness of God. You just can't. It chases you down no matter where you are no matter what situation you're in. Family, if you're anything like me, sometimes you may get locked up behind bars in the prison of want. And if that is the case for you sometimes, I want to tell you that what you have, what you have in your shepherd, 
what you have in your host is far greater than anything you don't have in your life. Put your trust in him. Let him be it, and you too shall not want. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we give all of our heart to you. We lean into your love and grace. And we thank you that you are willing to be our shepherd and our host. And we thank you, Lord, that that is enough. May we always trust that that is enough for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.